eating. I want to talk to you today about missional eating. Um, specifically, eating with people outside of this room. Eating meals, welcoming people into your home, exercising hospitality with people outside of our faith. Um, these are not people from another planet. These are people who view our planet differently. They, they don't look through eyes of faith. And, you know, recent studies, for the first time that I'm aware of, recent studies indicate that Americans eat most of their meals alone these days. Um, so this morning, what I'd like to do is look at some examples from the life of Jesus and encourage you to follow Him in opening up your heart, your home, your dinner table to people who are outside of our shared faith with the hope that God will use those important conversations for their good and for His glory. So we'll start in Luke 15 and move on to Luke 19 from there. So if you can open your Bibles to Luke 15, I'd like to pray for us. We'll, we'll dig in. Father, thank you for the privilege of being encouraged through your word by your spirit this morning. We trust that will happen. Father, please do that for us. Strengthen us. Show us, show us your son and his compassion and help us to follow him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So last week we looked at this passage in Luke 15 where Jesus tells three stories back to back to back about things that are lost that are desperately sought. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. Um, but what I'm wondering is, do you remember why he told those stories? What, what it was that triggered them? And you see that in the very first two verses of chapter 15. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, we called them the seriously religious and their Bible teachers, all grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The thing that kept getting Jesus in trouble was that he liked a good party, okay? In the eyes of the religious leaders, it was a little different. They would say he liked a bad party or he liked the wrong parties, or at least he liked the parties with the wrong people at them. Jesus partied with, as the religious leaders put it, tax collectors and sinners. One writer helps us. It says that tax collectors were social outcasts who commonly used their position to cheat people. But there's more to their story. They were collaborators. They were working for the enemy. But there's even more to it than that. The Jews were looking for the day when God would defeat the Romans and reestablish his kingdom. So it wasn't just Jews versus Romans. It was God versus Romans. And the tax collectors had opted for the Romans. They were traitors to the nation, and they were traitors to God, and they were God's enemies. And so it raised all kinds of confusing, troubling signals when Jesus began to welcome and have dinner with these kinds of people, tax collectors and sinners. And he was at so many of these questionable parties that he began to acquire a reputation. Uh, Jesus himself would say in Matthew chapter 11, I, the Son of Man, came eating 
and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus was having so many of these dinner parties, so many of these conversations that that this began to be his reputation. This is who they thought he was. And it was who he was. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Um, So what we want to do today is drop into two of those questionable meals and see if we get a sense for why Jesus was so willing to risk his reputation and what it means for us to follow his example. So flip a couple pages now to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered Jericho, the city of Jericho, and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of of stature. So we meet this man, Zacchaeus, who lives in Jericho. He is one of those tax collectors who were hated for working for the occupying Roman forces and for pilfering off the top for personal gain. It was, as I understand the tax collector world, kind of a pyramid scheme, and Zacchaeus was at the top of the pyramid, and he was good at it because he was rich, we're told. We're also told that he was short, and that he was too short to even see Jesus through the crowds that had gathered after the incident where Jesus had just healed a blind man, so there's a large crowd there. Now, it's possible for you to read that last phrase, that he, Zacchaeus could not see Jesus because Jesus was of small stature. But I think more likely the traditional description that comes to us from that ancient, uh, that ancient hymn, uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, is probably the right, right way to read this, and it's probably Zacchaeus' stature that we're talking about. So, Zacchaeus hatches a plan, he runs on ahead, he climbs up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, it's a bit undignified of a scenario. It's like you're Your CPA in his three-piece suit is climbing a tree to watch a parade. Uh, But it gives you a sense for how desperate Zacchaeus is to see Jesus. And he has his wish come true in a way that he couldn't have imagined. Jesus stops under the tree where Zacchaeus is and he calls him out by name, which is kind of unusual in a lot of these Bible stories. You know, a lot of times it's just a centurion or it's just... um, a paralyzed man, or a woman. But here, we hear his name, and it's on Jesus' own lips. He says, Zacchaeus. He calls him out by name, and he tells him he must come to his house today. He has to. Jesus feels compelled to spend time, likely share a meal that would have been their hospitality in that day, with this short, rich thief. And so he orders him down from the tree. Zacchaeus welcomes into his home gladly. All that he had hoped for beyond his wildest dreams was happening. But not everybody was happy about it. When the people saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Um, 
One writer suggests that tax collectors were viewed in that day with all the fondness we would look on a drug dealer. Okay? They were not happy that Jesus was spending time with him. The implication here is that Jesus is going to go to Zacchaeus' home and he's going to share a meal with him. He's going to welcome him, receive him as a friend. He would have fellowship. They called it table fellowship with him there. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But to stay at someone like Zacchaeus' home and to eat with them was essentially to become a partner in crime with them because social isolation was part of the deterrent from their practices. If you're going to be a tax collector, you're going to be excluded. But the risk to his reputation was worth it to Jesus. Zacchaeus, we look into his house now where Jesus has come, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. This is a a remarkable change of heart, right? He goes from a renowned thief to a philanthropist extraordinaire. He gives half of his money away. And remember, he's a wealthy man. He agrees to pay the stiffest of penalties that the law would have possibly levered, which is five times. Zacchaeus, or four times rather, Zacchaeus voluntarily undertakes that severe penalty to make things right with anybody that he has cheated. And Jesus says that this kind of change of heart can only be attributed to one thing, and that is that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house today. That is, Zacchaeus' sins that have so separated him from God have been remedied. His relationship with God has been made right by Jesus. And Jesus then explains it this way. He says, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus is saying, this is why I came. This is why I came to earth. This is why I passed through Jericho. This is why I had to go to Zacchaeus' house. It was to seek and to save what was lost. This was Jesus' mission, we could say. And in this instance, he came to Jericho for Zacchaeus. He sought him out, invited himself to his home, likely shared a meal with him there with this chief tax collector. He came to seek him out and to rescue him from his sin. So, how did Jesus go about seeking and saving the lost? Often he did it by sharing hospitality with them. He's in somebody's home sharing a meal with somebody that's far from God. Somebody that's outside of this room. Somebody that doesn't share our faith. And it's good to remember, we are all outsiders until Jesus brings us in. Okay? So that's our first story. The second story I want you to look at is in Matthew chapter 9. It starts in verse 9 there and goes like this. As Jesus, Jesus is traveling again, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now again, here we have another 
tax collector, another one of these wealthy thieves, in a sense. He's an IRS man of the worst sort. Scholars tell us that by, by Jewish law, a tax gatherer was debarred from the synagogue. He was included with things and beasts unclean. And Leviticus chapter 20, verse 5 was applied to them. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case. He was grouped with robbers, murderers, tax collectors. All of those were classed together as swindlers. They were equated legally with pagan slaves. They were not to be associated with. Now, you remember when Jesus was teaching the church, when one of their member, members goes wayward and they go through all this elaborate rescue process, but they still won't listen, the last step, what does Jesus say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. They are the poster boy for someone who's excluded from God's people. But Jesus calls him, and he follows. And in all likelihood, this is the Matthew that wrote the gospel of Matthew that's in our Bibles. But what I want to focus on is what happens next. In verse 10, we find them, all of a sudden we find the scene shifts. Jesus is reclined at table in a house. And if we were to read Mark's account of the same story, we'd know that this is Matthew's own house. And many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So, again, we find another one of these parties with many sinners and many tax collectors, Matthew's friends. They're gathered there reclining with Jesus, probably around a dinner table. And a group of leaders, we've already encountered them, called the Pharisees, have a question for the disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees were Jews who had a reputation for excelling at, ob at observing their religious laws with precision. They lived in a closed community where admission to the Pharisees, the group of the Pharisees, was closely regulated. Cleaning up your act was a condition of association. And so according to their tradition, there was a whole segment of society that no self-respecting Pharisee would associate with, and they called them sinners. New Testament scholar Grant Osborne helps us think about that. He says, most likely, these sinners were blatant offenders of the rule of conduct. People such as pimps and prostitutes and thieves and gamblers. Jesus and his disciples were sharing table fellowship with these disreputable people. The Pharisees were scrupulous in their eating habits, not just in terms of the food laws, but in terms of who they shared their meals with. Um, there's a scholar, his name is Jacob uh, Neisner, and he researched back to find out what some of these pharisaical, pharisaical laws would have been that they were using at that time. The rabbinical laws, he, he notes, of 341 rulings that go back to the Pharisees, 229 of those rules were related to matters of table fellowship, what you could eat and who you could eat it with. He said the Pharisees might be called an eating club, 
A central question in the Judaism of Jesus' day was, with whom can I eat? Doing lunch for them, they say, was doing theology. And for Jesus and his disciples, to eat with such people was scandalous. It meant they were accepting tax collectors and sinners and identifying with them. Jesus came to call sinners, serious sinners, big-time sinners, professional sinners. And how does He do that? Again, in our story, and often we'll see Him, He goes to someone's home and He has a meal with them. He did it often enough that this was His reputation. Again, look at Matthew 11. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if we go back to Matthew's house and Matthew's party, Jesus is about to rebuke the Pharisees and essentially tell them they really need to study their Bible more. This is what he says. When he heard what they were saying, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Essentially, go study your Bibles more. Learn what this Old Testament passage means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. This is Jesus' stated mission to go to those who are sick, to sinners, and reach out to them. And how does he do that? Often, it's through hospitality. He shares a meal in someone's home with them. Meals really mattered back in Jesus' day. To share a meal with someone was really significant. Now think back with me to the, what we taught on last week. The story of, we called it the story of the prodigal son. The lost son. He wanders away. He gets his inheritance. He wanders away from his father and squanders it all. What represents his separation from his father. Okay. You remember this verse. He was longing. Remember there was a famine. He squandered all his money. There's a famine. And he finds himself longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And then it says, no one gave him anything. No one shared a meal with him. He was out of fellowship with everyone. So he comes to his senses. He goes home and he's found by his father who's been waiting for him. And what happens then? Well, father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this was my son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Right? His restoration to the father is represented by what? A meal that is shared. Veal at the Angus barn, right? This is the significance of meals in Scripture, a shared meal in Scripture or its lack. tells you if you have a relationship or you don't. And it's true of God too. Think, when Israel was rescued from Egypt by the plagues and the Passover and God rescued them and brought them out of slavery and back to a right relationship with Him, how, do we, how did the Jews celebrate that and remember that? A Passover 
feast. Right? When we gather as God's people and we remember Christ, our Passover, our Passover lamb who gave his life to restore us to a right relationship with God, how do we remember his work on the cross on our behalf? A meal. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion, which is language that indicates the table fellowship that we have with the Father by the work of the Son on our behalf. Our relationship with Him is restored. When, um, when writers of Scripture want to describe what it's going to be like with God in heaven, what's one of the images that they love to use? Revelation chapter 19, the angel says to John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a banquet. It's a wedding feast. Jesus uses that same imagery of a future banquet when he talks about the kingdom. He says to his disciples, I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. It is this constant symbol of communion and restored relationship. Now, for those of you who are older, uh, let me... Let me let me remind you of something that you will remember. You youngsters probably never heard of this. There used to be a band called Audio Adrenaline. Okay, some of you are too young to even know who they are. Um, and they sang a song. The lyrics were this. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. It's a big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. Okay, you old guys remember that? Remember that song? Right? Um, it was about heaven. It was, they were describing what heaven would be like. And they are spot on with the imagery Jesus uses. I except for the football thing, right? We'll, we'll have to wait and see about football. But in terms of my father's house has many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And there will be a banquet table there with lots and lots of food where we will have a meal together. We'll have table fellowship together. Um, that's the imagery that underlies that. In the Bible, meals are about relationship. Relationship restored, fellowship, about, especially about restoration and communion with God. It's one of the great pictures in the Bible of what it means to know God, to be loved and accepted by Him. The picture is you get to partake in a meal with Him. And that's why this table, the communion table, is for believers. It's for those who by Christ's work have been restored to God. Meals really mattered in that day. And I, I want to suggest that they still matter in our day. There's still a powerful symbol in our day. Think with me. Let me take you back to high school, to the cafeteria, and who you ate lunch with. That's table fellowship. You ate with your buddies. You ate with your friends. And if someone ate alone, what did that mean? No friends. No one, no one was part of their, they were part of no one's 
fellowship. My, uh, my second favorite football coach, um, my son coaches, he's my favorite football coach. My second favorite football coach is a guy who coaches up uh, in, the, in New England area, I believe, for an all-boys school. His name is Joe Ehrman. He's playing in the NFL. He coaches with a, a friend of his named Biff, Biff Poggy. They coach this program together at this all-boys private school. This is what they say about their program that they have up there. It's really unique. Their goal is to build, build men, uh, a man built for others. That's their goal. It's not primarily winning, even though they're one of the winningest programs in their state. Um, their primary goal is to build a man built for others, their football team. Biff says, we are a program of inclusion. We do not believe in separation. The boys would make an impact by breaking down cliques and stereotypes, by developing empathy and kindness for all. That's the idea behind Biff and Joe's ironclad rule that no Gilman football player should ever let another Gilman boy, teammate or not, eat lunch by himself. It is not permitted. They tell him, you happen to see another boy off by himself, go sit with him or bring him over to sit with you and your friends. I don't care if you know him or not. I don't care if he's the best athlete in the school or the so-called nerd with his head always down in the books. You go get him and make him feel wanted. You make him feel special. It's simple, they say. This is what it means to be a man built for others. This is the power of table fellowship. They understand table fellowship. And that, in all of our life, still has meaning. When you invite someone into your home for a meal, you are saying something about your relationship with them, your care for them. And we are doing this less and less. There was a survey done a while back. How often do you entertain guests for dinner? Only 6% said, I do this every week. Okay, 6%. More than 60% said a few times a year or rarely or never. Okay. This is a meaningful but neglected way to communicate love and care for the people that we know. David Mathis helps us bridge. He says, when people don't gather in droves for stadium crusades or tarry long enough on the sidewalk to hear your gospel spiel, what will you do? Where will you interact with the unbelieving about the things that matter most? He says, invite them to dinner. Invite them to dinner. Now, the, the New Testament language for this idea, broadly speaking, is the word we translate hospitality. Literally, you love strangers or you love outsiders, even though it's used both for people within the church family, and those without in the New Testament. We are commanded by God to be hospitable. Did you know it was a command? Um, Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 1 Peter 4, show hospitality to one another. And then because Peter knows us, he says, without grumbling. Okay. 
1 Timothy, these are requirements for overseers or elders or pastors. Paul writes to Timothy, it's trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or, or pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach, and they're in the middle, hospitable, to, to be qualified to be a leader in the church. You must be hospitable. Being hospitable is something we must do. Okay? We must do this. It is commanded us. And it's so strategic. Um, I like the, the title to a lady named Catherine Parks, her article. Her article was titled, They Shall Know Us by Our Parties. And then she starts her article with this confession. It's a good one. She says, Father, forgive me. It's a month into summer vacation, and I have not hung the twinkle lights and laid out the fine linens in your name. I have not fired up the grill and hosted my friends and neighbors. I have not partied like you taught us to party. Tim Chester wrote a really helpful book called uh, A Meal with Jesus. And he reflects there on these Pharisees and their accusations about um, Jesus' dinner company. And he says, the Pharisees are asking Jesus to behave like a doctor who avoids sick people. Such a doctor clearly couldn't do his work. Jesus the Savior can't do his work unless he's with sinful people. And then he says, it's the same for those of us who follow Jesus. We can't do our work of pointing sinners to the Savior unless we spend time with them. The first thing Matthew does after following Jesus is to throw a party. Being hospitable is something we must do. It's commanded of us. And it's so strategic. And it's something that we can do. This is something we all can do. Tim Chester continues. He says, one of the great things about mission through meals is that it enfranchises the people of God. We don't have to understand missiological jargon or hold a crowd with our oratory. Or, or oratory excuse me. He says, we don't even need to be able to cook. We just need to be two things. People who eat and people who love Jesus. That's all you have to be. Okay. Being hospitable is something that we can do. It's just, it can just be a regular meal in your home or at a local hangout, a place where casual but meaningful conversation can happen. It does not have to be a meal to die for, okay? You don't have to take your friends to Italy where you can buy a slice of Louis XIII pizza with lobster, caviar, eight different types of cheese, hand-picked pink Australian river salt, and it sells for, one pizza sells for $12,000, okay? You know, CC's will do, okay? It's about the fellowship. Just a regular meal. Now, some of you are going to excel at this. You are hospitality monsters, okay? You're starting to salivate right now, and you're poking your spouse saying, is he saying we can have parties? In Jesus' name, we can do that. I love having parties, and you can hardly wait. So I want to do something a little different. If you have, it's interesting, Peter talks about this 
in the language of gifts, that God may actually gift some of his people to exercise hospitality amongst believers and outside to bless and strengthen the church in that way. If you think you might be one of those people who loves to throw or host a party and that God may have given you that ability, would you just raise your hand? Raise your hand high. Go ahead. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Raise your hand up high. At church, pay attention to these people. Okay. When they throw parties, you want to go to those parties. People will actually come to their parties. Um, and uh, so I, that's the first thing I want you to do. Notice who they are. If they invite you to a party, you should go. But the second thing we want to do is we want to pray for you. Because we really believe that you are in this church family strategically. And God wants to use you by the way you open up your home and are a gracious host and you are willing to speak of Christ in a winsome way there and invite us to share in that, that God is going to use you greatly. So if you would bow with me, I would just like to pray for those of you who just raised your hand that God would use you that way. Let's pray right now. Father, I'm so deeply thankful for the people who just raised their hand who love to exercise hospitality who love to love around their dinner table or at the coffee shop or at the cheesecake factory or wherever it is. They love, they love to open their heart and their home to outsiders, to friends for sure, but even to outsiders in the name of Christ. I just pray that you would bless their every effort, that there would be many people who taste not only of good food but of the love of God in their homes, and that there would be meaningful conversations around their table that drift towards Jesus by the Spirit's good work, and people would come to faith. Many would begin to come to faith because they are mindful of the love of Christ, because these, these good people have opened their home. And I pray this for them, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Okay, but, but it is still a command. Okay, it's still expected of, of all of us. Um, it's been said that it's hard for our neighbors to believe that we want to spend eternity with them in heaven if we aren't interested in spending an hour with them in our living room. So, in light of this, the doubly introverted Trotter House is throwing the neighborhood Christmas party this year. And we are inviting all our neighbors to come and just hang out with us so that we can build relationship with them and we can love them in a tangible way. And if God opens the door, we can have meaningful conversation then or in the days that follow. Um, the problem is people can smell an introvert. And the only thing worse than an introvert is an introverted pastor. So our parties are not always really well attended in the neighborhood. So, so I have a secret weapon this year. We are we're co-hosting the party, I hope, we're working on this, with my absolute total extrovert party animal atheist neighbor. He's my best friend in the neighborhood. And we're going to do this party together in Jesus' name. He just doesn't know it, Right? <laughs> We're going we're gonna to do this party together because he's like the mayor of my neighborhood and he knows everybody and they love him and if he comes, then I'll get half the neighborhood that come and, uh, and do that. So he's going he's gonna to be used by God even though he doesn't even, even know it at this point in time. But gosh, if you have 
the ability to throw a party, throw one, throw one and invite your small group and invite your coworkers and watch what God does. Um, and how, when, when was the last time you had somebody outside of your circle of faith that was in your home for a meal? And you listened well to them and cared for them. And, and when you prayed for the meal, you prayed for them. Um, you can do this. We, we can do this. You can do it with your small group. You can do it over Thanksgiving. You can find somebody that doesn't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving. You can include them in your family. You can do it over Christmas. Gosh, you have tons of opportunity at Christmas. You can do it down at the coffee shop. You can do it at McDonald's. Excuse me, the Met Cafe. You want to up, upgrade. Um, you, can, you can do it in the school cafeteria. You can do it in the lunchroom at work. A simple meal with a friend or an acquaintance or even a stranger prayerfully asking God to open the door to the gospel through these Christ-honoring expressions, Christ-like expressions of love. And I would say there's, I would add one requirement. I'd say there's three requirements. You have to like to eat, and you have to love Jesus, and you have to know how to tell your story. You have to be ready to tell your story. Why are you a Christ follower? What difference does that make in your life? You have to be if somebody says, so how would I become a Christian? You have to be able to tell them about that. And uh, Rob Craig is always salivating for the opportunity to come to a small group and equip you how to do that. But we can do this. We must do this. This holiday season, will you open up your home to love outsiders as Jesus did and as he taught us to? I'd like to leave you with um, a challenge on this subject, it comes from one of Christianity's great philosophers of our day. His name is Francis Schaeffer. It's interesting that he's writing about this. He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your, excuse me, this is Leviticus, forget that. <laughs> this is Francis Schaeffer. Actually, that is a fabulous verse. I want to read that to you first. This is why we do this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know, we were all strangers until Jesus brought us in. And that's why we open our home. That's why we love our neighbors. Because we love because he first loved us, as John put it. Now here's Francis Schaeffer. Don't start with a big program. He's British. Or he's Swiss or European or something, that's why he spells that. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ, which is a pretty serious dare. Do what I am going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. You don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your session or your board or your elders. All you have to do is open your home and begin. It is said that the Son of Man came eating and drinking and that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Go and do likewise. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord, have mercy uh, on us, your people. Help us to be like your Son, Jesus, in the way that we love. May the opening of our homes lead to the opening of hearts to the gospel and brothers and sisters sitting around our table who once were your enemies, 
and now have been adopted into your family. We look forward to that. We ask your grace and mercy on us this season as we obey. With glad hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.